Welcome to The Political Animals, a podcast about politics, culture and ideas from a conservative perspective. I'm Simon Kennedy, lecturer in intellectual history at Christian Heritage College in Brisbane and a research fellow at the University of Queensland. I'm joined as always by my podcast partner in crime, Jonathan Cole, who is Assistant Director of the Centre for Public and Contextual Theology at Charles Sturt University in Canberra. Jonathan, how are you travelling today? Simon, generally pretty well, but I've got to say I had a very anxious morning because I did what in retrospect was an act of lunacy, but we'll put it down to podcast uh, naivety. I actually scheduled a dental appointment appointment two hours ago, and uh, I didn't schedule that just for a routine checkup. I had a pain in my tooth, and I thought I might need some serious work. And then as it came up in the diary and I was about to enter that torture chamber that some people call a dental practice these days, (laughs) I was thinking of you actually and thinking, how am I going to explain to Simon Mm. why I'm drooling and sobering and I can't actually string a sentence together. It's, but it's, yeah, as it happens, uh, it was all good and I didn't need any work. But oh, that's good. I tell you Relief. what, I feel like an idiot for scheduling a dental appointment two hours before recording a podcast. <laughs> well, I mean, it, <laughs> well, it's not quite. I mean, I, this was out of my hands, but I, I, there was a, a, a very noisy ride-on lawnmower just outside the window here going for about the last 10 or 15 minutes, but thankfully he's disappeared. Uh, that would have been more potentially more disastrous than you having a bit of a, a numb face. But here we are, and this week we are discussing the conservatism of the American philosopher and public intellectual Russell Kirk. Uh, now, he was also an author of gothic fiction, but he's best known as one of the leading lights of 20th century American conservatism. Kirk was born in Michigan in 1918, completed his Doctor of Letters at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland after World War II, and his doctoral thesis became his magnum opus, which was entitled The Conservative Mind. He is the author of dozens of books, was a syndicated newspaper columnist, and lived out most of his life in the tiny little town of Macosta in Michigan on his family homestead. His life's well documented in a number of other places, so I'll leave the bio there. But today, we are going to discuss Kirk's brand of conservative philosophy by looking at that magnum opus that I mentioned just before, The Conservative Mind. Jonathan, would you be able to give us a bit of an idea of what The Conservative Mind is as a work, where it sits in the history of ideas in terms of this this thing we call conservatism? Thanks, Simon. It's a real pleasure to delve into the thought of Russell Kirk. You know that I have uh, something of a fetish for him. Um, you, you, are, you are a Kirk a Kirk uh, aficionado and fan, definitely. And I'm a big fan as well. It's great to be talking about it. Look, you can describe me as a Kirk lover. You don't have to be all um, sure, polite sure. about it. I mean, no, no, the no, way no, what fair. I would yeah. say is I've actually been married fair. over 20 years. It's 23, 24, 25 years. I can't remember exactly, but my wife doesn't listen to this podcast. So there are no domestic ramifications for anything. There's no I'd risks. <laughs> it's on That's my good. ring. It's on my ring, but it would take three minutes yeah. to get it off and have a look. In yeah, the yeah. <laughs> at least so, you have yours. Yeah, but I've, I've had one love affair in my life, and it mm. was with this man, Russell Kirk, a platonic oh, intellectual love affair, of course. Mm-hmm. And so it is, uh, in all seriousness, uh, a great pleasure to tackle this topic. Look, it, it's quite difficult to know where to begin with a book such as The Conservative Mind because it is arguably, and perhaps arguably is redundant here, the single most important and certainly impactful book written anywhere on conservatism. Now, I think a good place to start actually is with a quote by Henry Regnery, who was the publisher of The Conservative Mm. Mind. And he wrote a foreword to the um, 1986 seventh revised final edition of The Conservative Mind. And he said this of it, 
It would be too much to say that the post-war conservative movement began with the publication of Kirk's book, but it did give conservatism its name and, more important, the coherence that had been lacking. Now, Mm. that's pretty high praise. And what people need to understand about this book is that it had really an almost immediate big impact. Uh, Yeah. It went on to... It's not usual book in that sense because it was actually, as I said, it was his PhD... So That's for right, someone yeah. to write a PhD and then for it to land and to basically get reviewed in every major newspaper, every major journal of note, all these venues, it had a big impact. It was taken really seriously. Uh, it's a quite a remarkable thing. Well, that's right. Most PhDs, as you know, Simon, sit on library bookshelves and no, they don't publishers. Sit. They that... languish. They languish on library bookshelves, John. Yeah, that's and they sell good. for a minimum of about $140 a copy. <laughs> That's right. And you're right. Yes. But the, the, the remarkable thing about this book is it did go on to sell over a million copies. And it's not it's not written as a kind of simple popular book. It's quite a, a scholarly, erudite work. It propelled Kirk into an immediate position of public prominence in American political and cultural life, a yeah. position yeah. He, he retained. He was actually a an academic at the time he wrote it at Michigan State College. And soon after this, he... Mm. He gave that up with. Um, he called it cow. Did he call it cow college? I think he called it cow college or something like something that. Something like that. He took. A, he 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 lobbed <laughs> he a, like a bomb at the um, <laughs> at the provost or president or whatever it was of the uni on his way out. But he he effectively this book allowed gave him the means and the profile to voluntarily ditch his academic career because he thought he came to the conclusion it was an absolute waste of time and that's what allowed him to work as a man of letters. But just let me give you a couple of facts to testify. Mm-hmm to the extraordinary impact, because this is really remarkable looking back at 1953 from 2020. Kirk's book, which, as you said, was widely reviewed. It was reviewed no less than in the New York Times and Time magazine. In fact, Time magazine dedicated its entire book review section to this quaint book called The Conservative Mind. And if that's not extraordinary enough, Simon, the New York Times gave it a favourable review. Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> and it was also yes. reviewed in academic journals like yeah. Political Science Quarterly, Yale Review, yeah. American Political Science Review. It's really almost inconceivable that a book with this title these days could be taken seriously by mm. intellectuals. Mm. And one of its one of its, one of its unique achievements is that it reached a popular audience, but was also at the same time taken seriously by the day's intelligentsia, being mm, discussed right. seriously by. Um, both fans and critics in scholarship. And my favourite little anecdote here, Simon, and I, I, I missed this the first time I read it, and it actually, again, comes in Henry Ragnery's... Oh, it's in the forward? It's in the forward because we yeah. had an episode, you may recall, yeah. and you should recall because you were there doing it with me, on yeah. Hayek's uh, famous essay, Why I Am Not a Conservative. Oh, well, yeah. according to Ragnery, that essay was actually inspired by Kirk's The Conservative Mind. And that oh, was, was it really? Was it really? Yeah. Oh, there you check, go. Check, check this. When Hayek first gave the paper at a meeting of the Mont Pelerin Society in Switzerland in 1957, and he was still the president at the time, not only was Kirk actually in attendance, they invited Kirk to give a response to Hayek's right. paper. Yeah. And according to Regner, he acquitted himself quite well, but he's not the most impartial, impartial, impartial. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 <laughs> Witness here, but still, yeah. that's a really interesting little intersection. Yeah, it is really with, interesting, actually. Uh, I didn't even know. Yeah. we did in the past. Yeah. Now, what's quite amazing is that 
Kirk was completely taken by surprise at the response and reaction to the conservative mind. Um, he actually said in his own words that he was surprised to find that he had contributed through the power of the word to a mm. large political movement in America. He had no idea that that was going to be his contribution. And there's a really interesting backstory here because, as you may know, Simon, the conservative mind was not Kirk's choice of title. And, in fact, when he sent the manuscript to Henry Regnery, mm. do you know what he first titled the book? Uh, no, no, no. Actually, I don't. I, I have read. I mean, I've read the Ford. I've read the Ford and so on. So if it's in there, uh, but I, I can't. I can't remember oh, what he yeah, wanted look, to call. Look, we all read forwards, but who who pays attention to them? Yeah, right. Exactly. It's like the apparatif before moving on to the main meal. No one, exactly, no one worries about exactly. that. But Kirk actually called it the Conservatives' Route, which is a very oh, pessimistic right. <laughs> yes, yes. title for a book that went on to play a, make a major contribution to kickstarting a conservative movement that is still going. Yeah almost 70 years later. Now, his friend, his good friend, Sidney Gare, who um, <laughs> he had the, the most wonderful description of Kirk that uh, history has left us. He described, described Kirk as about as communicative as a turtle, which I love. Yes. Anyway, he, as they were trying to workshop the title, <laughs> yeah. because Regnery, yeah. he's thinking of this title that conservatives are out, and he's thinking there's no way I can sell that. Right. And Gare, Gare proposes, what about the long retreat? And again, this shows you <laughs> the kind this of pessimism. They, yeah, this is where they were thinking and things were, right? They were thinking That's right. things aren't going anywhere good. So really right. it was almost like a uh, he was seeing the conservative mind as a sort of post-mortem, basically. Well, in a way, and well, he certainly, I think part of what um, spurned him to write this book was that he thought conservatism um, had really fallen out of favour um, had become, in a way, a pejorative term. And he was writing at a time in which he perceived liberalism in the American sense of the term to be um, completely regnant. Mm. And so there was no conservative movement to speak of at the time. And conservative conservatism had become identified as a kind of embarrassing, intellectually mm. um, specious and spurious kind of mm. reactionary thing that, um, only idiots would attach themselves to. Any well, basically, point. what Hayek describes as conservatism in his in his <laughs> well, that's his essay, a, right? That's right. That that's that's a really pertinent point. See, the the opening line of the conservative mind is actually a John Stuart Mill quote. Oh, it's the best. Infamous. It's the best opening to a book. I, I have to say, it is the best opening to a book. I'm going to turn to it. It is the quote: "The stupid party." That's right. That's how <laughs> that's John Stuart quote. Mill described conservative. So. Yeah. Um, I think Kirk set out with the basic premise that conservatism had been routed and mm. what he wanted to try and do was, if you like, breathe new life into what he thought was an intellectually credible and noble tradition and, if you like, reintroduce it or even introduce it for the first time to an American mm. public that had nothing but the kind of caricatures, as you say, Simon, that, that Hayek had yeah. about this book. Now, the question is why... What is this remarkable book that had such a remarkable impact? Well, Kirk describes the book, and this this must warm your heart, Simon, as a history of ideas because oh, you're a self-styled intellectual beautiful. historian. Yeah. And its purpose was to examine the validity of conservative ideas for what Kirk called his perplexed age, the mm -hmm. 1950s. I mean, 
it's worth noting here that there's, <laughs> there's, a, there's a deep irony in that the popular perception of the 50s in 2020 is of this dour, conservative, sort of repressively yeah. conservative society. And here's Kirk writing this book that he wanted to call The Conservatives Route to address a liberal-dominated world yeah. and try and re-inject and revive, resuscitate this very thing that we think, looking back, was actually the dominant yeah. cultural mood. Yeah. Now, yeah. Yeah. structurally, the book reflects the fact that it's a history of ideas. And so, in actual fact, and I don't need to tell you this, but perhaps some of our listeners, we can spare them the, the uh, well, I was going to say spare them the pain, but it's... It's a joy, but I can't really say spare them the joy because we want to encourage the joy. No, we want people to read this book. It's it's a beautiful book. Worth, that's right. It's superbly written. It, it will repay anyone any number of readings. I think. I think anyway. So we, we, go on, go on. I just want to encourage people to to read it. That, 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 <laughs> thank you for saving me, Simon. <laughs> that's fine. That that was uh that was like the Hindenburg going down in flames. Yeah. The, <laughs> the the book structurally it's a compendium of seminal conservative British and American figures, interestingly both thinkers and politicians, spanning the 18th century to the mid 20th century, and so he runs through in, in the chronological order in which these figures um, were active in the political scene, hmm. and. He, he runs through them all, and the idea is that on the basis of this survey, if I can call it that, Kirk pulls together what he thinks is a conservative tradition, and he outlines not so much a definition as a set of general principles of conservatism, which he's gathered from all of these um, famous figures. It starts with Burke and it ends up with his good friend Eliot, although the yes. original edition, as you might know, had the subtitle from Burke to Santayana, but he expanded it. In he added Elliot later on and other people too, right? But yeah, definitely later on. Yeah, that's right. Now, to understand Kirk's conception of conservatism, we actually have to start, I think, with what he despised most, and that was the idea mm. of ideology. Mm-hmm. He was militantly opposed to ideology. This is a big part of my own love affair with him because I mm. similarly despise ideology. Now, he had a very simple definition of ideology, which was, and I quote, an abstract, rigorous set of political dogmata. So political ideology was this completely mapped out idea of what society had to look like and all he had to do was ruthlessly impose it no matter what the circumstances. Yeah. He thought conservatism was more a prudential approach to politics that applied general principles that were firm enough to guide political action but flexible enough to be adaptable to different times and different places. Yeah. Now, yeah, the, yeah. the general principles, he thought, were arrived at by convention and compromise for the most part and mm. tested by long experience. Yeah. And so Kirk... He actually says quite explicitly that the conservative mind in characteristically Kirkian language treats Mm. of Mm. such general principles, and I'm I'm going to get into some of these principles in a second, but what it it did not set out to do was, in his inimitable and evocative language, point the way to Zion. It's very clear. it's, It's important to be clear about that for this reason. Kirk, not so much in this book, but in subsequent works, was very cognizant of not only the risk but the capacity of conservatism to morph into an ideology. That is, to become pretty much the mirror opposite 
of left-wing ideologies. These are said mm. a set of kind of religiously imposed dogmata that must be imposed, if you like, by fiat and coercion. Yeah. Come hell or high water, and he really thought this would corrupt and pervert um, conservatism. And I think this is a really pertinent challenge today because I, I actually think yeah. conservatism has increasingly come to function more like an ideology rather than yeah. a set of principles, prudential principles, yeah, um, with a view to good governance. Probably what probably what it's done, I and mean, we can talk about this more if we later on if we want to. But probably what it's done is it's t- attached itself to other potentially to other ideologies like free market ideology, for example, or yeah, national nationalism, which is which can become an ideology. Um, that strikes me as a real. That's the thing I think that Kirk's concerned about the perversion of these prudential principles, um, but also, you know, a divergence from them in once in another sense as well, right? That's absolutely right, because I think there there is an an important intellectual question here, which I'll just raise and leave hanging there and then move on to the actual principles. Yeah, sure. But, you know, this is a good good tried and true practice of an academic here. Uh, Raise the question and then don't answer it. But, and and this is to your point, that I think the danger he perceived of conservatism morphing into an ideology, it's not so much that the conservative principles themselves can become an, an ideology because the whole idea mm-hmm. of the principles is that they're supposed to be um, they're, they're supposed to be a vaccine against ideology. But there are, as you named them, Simon, certain right-wing ideologies that the conservatives yeah. can easily slip into, can elide into without even noticing it. And That's right. And one of the reasons I think conservatism has become increasingly ideological is it's become more libertarian we've discussed this in some of our earlier podcasts and like you say it's become more nationalistic and nationalism and libertarianism are quintessential ideologies yes certainly libertarianism was an ideology as far as kirk was concerned and i'm with him on that although clearly uh libertarians may object to that in any event how about we uh, going to the principles, there, there are too many. Kirk famously laid out six principles, which he then expanded to ten in a yes. later work called The um, Politics of Prudence, I think it was. And so I, I, I don't want to just kind of systematically and boringly run through every principle. And some of them, like a suspicion of what he called wholesale change, mm. are yeah. particularly well known. In fact, they're the very basis of the caricature that yeah. one encounters so often in conservatism, and I think we saw that in the, the Hayek essay, yes. Simon, and yeah. that goes back to Burke. And, and really, I, I don't know about you, I can't think of a version of conservatism that doesn't have that as one of its core. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah. It's principles. close to a true, it was close to a truism, but it is, it is, a, it is a core, core principle nonetheless. Yeah. That's right. And so I don't think we want to necessarily waste time on that. Yeah. So let me raise, Simon, what I think are three of the most interesting original um, conservative principles or general principles of conservatism. And I think he, call, worth... he calls them canons. He calls them canons of conservative thought, right? In this in this uh, book, he calls them the six canons of conservative thought. They're all listed in the introduction for people who want to look at them. That's right. But, um... The um, and, I, and I think it's, it's worth us discussing each one of these a little bit, Simon. And I also, I've chosen these ones because I think they're particularly relevant to our time. Yeah. The first one yeah. is... Uh, this is this is my very succinct four word articulation of something that 
has a bit more meat on the bones. So mm. I'm going to, I'm giving you the dog version. So throwing the bone okay. to the dog to chew on. <laughs> the dog version. Yeah. yeah okay. <laughs> and that is respect for ancestral wisdom. Now, what yeah. does this mean? Kirk really understood that wisdom comes from the knowledge that is passed down by generation to generation. And the knowledge generally, there are exceptions, but the knowledge that generally is passed down is what is tried and tested and actually works. Now, this, Mm -hmm. I think, Simon, is completely contrary to a number of modern prejudices. That is, because today we're all about progress, um, we, we not only have convinced ourselves of the delusion that people that lived in the uh in the past and you don't have to yeah. be that distantly in the past like a century ago yeah were nothing but ignorant you know superstitious ignoramuses full of yeah. uh prejudice and uh, bigotedness if that's a word mm. i just made it a word if it's not yeah. <laughs> and not only that now you have to not only just dismiss mm. those ignorant facile, immature human beings that lived in the same earth as, as us in the past, but we have to actually repudiate them. You know, we yep. don't, dead white men by definition have nothing to tell us, even if they're people like Plato and Aristotle. Yeah, yeah. The most remarkable intellects to walk walk the earth. And so I think this is, this is really, really important today mm. because I think we've mm. completely lost sight of this. And it's quite mm. remarkable that Kirk, again, we, re, we must reiterate, was trying back in the 1950 mm. to revivify these general principles. And I think yeah, you like that word, Simon. Uh, revivify is a very good word. <laughs> I, I, no, no, but I, I do like it because he was trying, he, he's, again, this reiter- you're coming back to the point that he was trying to bring back to life something that he thought was dead or dying at least. Yeah. And he, he did certainly, like historically speaking, he did grow, he was a, a root cause of the regrowth of, con- of a sort of coherent conservative movement, particularly in the United States. But the problems that he identified are potentially worse today than what they were in his yes, time, right? Yes, indeed. And I think this is, this is, for me, the key takeaway and the key thing I want to convey to our listeners to sell to them, mm, <laughs> to yes. use a crass marketing term that would, term, terminology that would probably make uh, Kirk roll in his grave, but nonetheless, that is that the very, and, and you, you really touched this, um, in the sweet spot, uh, Simon, that Mm. the very rationale that prompted Kirk to lay out these principles and to try to encourage people to embrace them has not only become relevant again, it's become even more urgent, I think, in our contemporary society because I think we're getting... We we now have certain um, contemporary ideas that are not only incompatible or don't take account of these conservative principles like a respect for the fact that more ancient humans might have some wisdom to impart to us yeah. about how to live on this earth. Plato and Aristotle are good points. You know, I'm a, yeah, I'm yeah, a bit of a yeah. fan of those guys. And yes, yes. I so. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I think it's really important that there are voices in contemporary society that are, if you like, pick up the mantle that 
Kirk threw down. Now, you know, the idea that you could write a, a, a book with anything like the word conservative in the title that's going to sell a million copies and get reviewed in the New York Times and the Yale Review is possibly a fantasy. But Today, uh, you mean? Today, yeah, definitely. Yeah, t- today, that's <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. But, you know, in our own little humble way, and there are many others uh, in this business too, we're trying to encourage people to rediscover yeah. the thought of Kirk and the, the Oak Shots, although Kirk for me is the, the, the bona fide yeah. conservative here. I think we do need to fight against this idea that not only do older humans have nothing to impart on us, but we have mm. to completely and actively reject them mm. for being the dim-witted idiots that they are. Well, that's right. And it's not just old, I mean, it's not just older humans, but it's humans who have gone before us to generations and generations and generations before us who have passed down civilization to us. They've passed down a set of ideas, institutions, and you know what Kirk's fond of calling folklore and folk wisdom, mm-hmm. right? That uh, and what he means by that is basically this series of assumed practices and. Uh, practices and he, he uses the word prejudice which is an unhelpful word in our day today <laughs> but what he means is this uh it's like an intuitive knowledge of how to relate to other people and how an intuitive knowledge of how the world works and also an intuitive knowledge of how to how to live in community yeah i think it's really important to highlight something you picked up there and that is kirk's contention is not that we are imprisoned to our ancestors. That is, we're not allowed to innovate or address injustice. It's got nothing to do with that. It's just that there are certain, um, there's certain timeless wisdom which can be gathered from looking at the way humans after in successive generations live. Certain things that just remain the permanent things, the things that are are true no matter what your cultural context. And he, he really intuited and perceived that there's a there's a real danger in abandoning that and just dismissing as an a priori act the past by virtue of it being the past and just looking mm. to the future and so the whole whole idea is not that we just have our gaze focused on the past it's that as we look forward mm. we also just you know glance back as well and, and ask ourselves actually what do we learn about the things that are involved, the true, the good, and the beauty? Because generation after generation has contemplated this. And it's not yes. just the dead white guys. It's the Chinese no. and the Indian civilization, yeah, yeah. The, the Incas and the our own indigenous Australians. The wisdom can be found in lots of different civilizational and cultural conditions. The point is yep. you've got to take an ecumenical approach to use a kind of yep. religious Christian yeah term and bring in all of the different perspectives in order to learn uh, what the wisdom is. Well, I've got, I've got one of his, his other books before me right now called The Roots of American Order. And in this book, he basically maps out a kind of path from um, Mount Sinai through to the founding of America. And that is an inherently multicultural, multi-civilizational project that he's he shows how everything that we have, everything that we have in here, is interested in America. But let's just let's just expand this a little bit and say, like Western civilization, for example. Every, everything that we have and enjoy today flows from 
these multi-civilizational there's all these streams that flow into the river that we're in at the moment and he, he's he's not at all interested in just dead white guys he he you know in the roots of american order he's he's dealing with ancient middle eastern thought and so on and then we you know we can i think we can all appreciate that that's a, a sound way to think about our past and to think about the inheritance that we have today as well that's right so that is the first uh, general principle i think is really worth highlighting and that is really essential for us to hold on to and not lose sight of in the face of <laughs> a lot of pressure that's respect for ancestral wisdom or at least even cognizance that yep. our ancestors have wisdom to impart yep. to us. the yep. second one simon this is really interesting and i dare say a little controversial we all love a bit mm. of controversy mm, mm. and that is an affection for the proliferating variety and mystery of human existence, as opposed yes. to the narrowing uniformity, egalitarianism, and utilitarian mm. aims of most radical systems. Now, mm. Kirk uh, was dead against something he called leveling, and that was the pretense that all humans are endowed with exactly the same interests, ideas, yes. predilections, and crucially, yes. talents and gifts. Yes. And this really led him to, and this is, I suppose, <laughs> you mentioned that prejudice is is kind of difficult language. That's a yeah, classic yeah. Kirkian term, difficult language to use today. Well, how's this one? I, Kirk was an aristocrat. And I'm going to yes. declare to you, Simon, that I'm also an aristocrat. This is one of the right, right, things right. I've taken off him. But he, like me, is an aristocrat in the Greek sense of the term, which is ruled by the best. Now, if you accept... Uh, as Kirk does, and I do, and I dare say you mm. do too, Simon, yeah. because it's yeah. an incontrovertible fact yes. that we are born uh, with different abilities. Yes, let's take intellectual ability. I don't think anyone could could claim, unless they have their head in the sound or are willing to ignore mm. uh, incontestable data. Mm that people's intellect varies in terms of their natural aptitude. Of course, opportunities and there are systemic factors, access to education, yeah, yeah, uh, stable parental environment. This all plays a factor. I'm not saying this is pure biology and not environment, but the research is pretty clear here that biology, the percentages vary, but let, let's say for argument's sake, it's about 50%. It's a decent chunk. Now, the aristocrat or someone who supports aristocracy like me, simply acknowledges the brute fact that not everyone is cut out for political leadership. And we live in a society that goes to great pains to pretend that we are all equal in a very absolute sense, not equal before the law, not worthy of equal dignity, which are all things that every person should Yes. including the yes. conservative, but really that we we are all equal in ability if we just give everyone the right opportunity. But I don't know about you, but I actually want to be ruled by the best, the brightest, the yeah. most virtuous, yeah. the most yeah. honest, those with the greatest yeah. integrity, those with wisdom. Yeah, and absolutely. All of these qualities are highly variable, whatever, whatever the reasons, mix of biology yeah. and circumstance well, well and, and usually those qualities as well are actually nurtured in a particular kind of environment so some people come through a particular kind of environment and then they 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 are they're exceptional they, they're, a different result occurs with this, some of these people um but 
you know what, like a, a, a highly, uh, a, an environment that encourages uh, a high level of education and learning about political things and about business and about other, I guess, other sophisticated aspects of life actually results in people who are put are in good stead to be in public life, right? I mean, that's mm-hmm. that's it is also environment. So there's a, there's a kind of combination of biology and environment here, and I think that Kirk is concerned with both, right? That there is you actually want to not, not only do you want to accept that people are unequal in their or in, unequal in their abilities, but also there is a sort of there is a, a, a an environment a certain kind of environment which nurtures and encourages particular outcomes, and that's not necessarily a bad thing to encourage those outcomes because there are going to be differences and people are differently gifted. There is, you know, Simon, there is an important qualification here and Plato comes to mind. Mm. As you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big, big fan of Plato's Republic, not because mm-hmm. I like what it says, but I'm... I'm no, it's a it, remarkable it, book. Let's put it that way. Oh, look, it's one of the greatest pieces of literature yeah. ever oh, written. It's amazing. Now, yeah. of course, Plato in his, um, his sort of city of speech... Gallipolis, you know, the beautiful city mm, mm. The, um, that Socrates lays out in his dialogue with uh, various metics and Athenians down in Piraeus, if you know the, the setting. Yes. Look, he, yes. he's also an aristocrat and he's proposing a type of aristocracy that I think needs to be carefully yeah. distinguished from where I think Kirk was heading and certainly... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. What I want people to take away from me describing myself in the, oh, yeah. as an aristocrat, yeah. and I stress again, in the Greek sense of ruled by the best, not ruled by the property class or the no, exactly. The, I'm, I'm the, I'm the, I'm the sons and grandsons of you know the idiotic grandson of some highly accomplished um, marquis. What, what do they call them over in England? I kind of you know some peerage. Oh yes, yeah, yeah, lords and and so yeah, on and so yeah, forth. Yeah. I'm showing my my convict. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm a I, I, kind of too. <laughs> Can't even get my um, baronesses and my barons sorted out. But see, Plato, he also wanted a city ruled by the best and the brightest, but his project ends up quite terrifying because he wanted to identify children with the right aptitude, separate them from their families, and manufacture this kind of elite super ruling class. Yeah, that's quite Um, a radical approach. Yeah, I'm in favour of what I would call an open aristocracy. So. Let's say you're the son or daughter of aristocrats, people who are virtuous and have had some kind of leadership position, whether in politics or business or culture. The mere fact that that you are the son or daughter of them doesn't earn you a place. That doesn't entitle you to a position of Mm. leadership. You've got to earn it. And similarly, the son of or daughter of some impoverished community, Mm. in my conception of an aristocracy, can become the prime minister or president. Of course. Because it's yeah. based on a mixture of character and ability. And again, yeah. I realize that there are all kinds of systematic obstacles to people based on race, sexuality, and sometimes gender and other issues. I acknowledge all of that, but the solution to that is not putting idiots in charge of the in charge of the ship to use another yeah. Uh, well, no, come on, Jonathan. Everyone platonic. needs to have a go. Everyone needs to have a go at steering the ship, surely. At the end of the day, there's too much at stake to mm, leave it into exactly. the hands of the dishonest, the narcissistic, the greedy. Am I describing mm. any political leader here? Anyway. The- never, never, never. 
And so I just wanted to qualify that. That is the kind of aristocracy we're talking about yeah. in recognition that there are some very pernicious forms. And if, if not really carefully handled, this concept, much like conservatism when it becomes corrupted as a form of ideology, again, um, can become something pernicious. But to bring it back, Simon, to the contemporary, I mean, mm. the very fact, I, I just sense that what I've just outlined would kind of um, short circuit a dinner table full of progressive intellectuals. <laughs> it would, Because, yeah, yeah. again, yeah. We've, we've, we've become so precious with our language that we've closed mm. our minds off to certain concepts. But, but let me put this to you, Simon. You know, uh, we've both, between us, we've got six children, right? Yeah, yep. and I've I've only got one of them, incidentally. Mm. <laughs> but between us, we've got six children. I'm well ahead. All... Let's just put it that way. I'm well ahead. At this You're ahead on the scoreboard at the moment. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm gonna have to get a move on soon, or else I'm not gonna catch you at this rate. But our children, my son's eight, and and your five kids kind of start from seven and, and go down. Now, mm. um, I love my son like you love your children. Mm. But um, wouldn't it be absurd to make any of them prime minister or the head of a CEO of a bank? And similarly, my late beloved grandfather had dementia from about mm. the age of 80 to 90 when he passed away. And mm. uh, for, he, he, was a, he had the kind of virtues we're talking about. Mm. Mm. He, was, he was a plumber. He had a very humble beginning. But he was a man of incredible integrity, great mm. wisdom, and he went mm. on and did achieved a, a lot in his life, well beyond plumbing. But mm. I'm mm. sorry, once you once you're impaired by dementia, that's not. It might be cruel, it might be unfair, but you're no longer fit for mm. high office. So I yeah. think anyone could you could you could make anyone admit that there are certain people. Obviously, someone in a coma. Mm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you have a yeah, yeah. president who's in a coma, then you need to take some action to put someone else in charge. So. I think we, this is why I call it a pretense, because if we really mm. think about it, we will accept that there are certain circumstances or qualities that rule out people for high office. There's one more point I think you were going to raise. Of there is, Kirk's, there is. Um, of Kirk's uh, canons, one, one more canon that he, he raises. That's right. And this, in some ways, this is the most interesting one, Simon, but also the most perplexing one, and it's this. He thought a conception of society, he, he had a conception of society as, and I quote, a spiritual reality possessing an eternal life but a delicate constitution. Now, just What does one, that mean? Well, <laughs> you tell me. Well, it's platonic, the, isn't it? It's very platonic. He has, he's actually quite a yeah, Platonist. Yeah, yeah. Well, he was I a think. bit of a, according to um, Bradley Berzer, who wrote a magnificent biography of Kirk called Russell Kirk, American Conservative, uh, he he notes and documents uh, in a very compelling fashion that Kirk was thoroughly a Stoic, actually, when he wrote The Conservative Mind. he, For those right. who don't know, he eventually found his way into Christianity. Uh, and he, he liked to kind of joke that he, he actually became baptized in the Catholic Church when he was 45. Mm. Um, he actually came from Puritan stock in the Midwest that, like a lot of Puritans, had, their faith had so watered down into yeah. some kind of insipid, mud-like substance that um, yes. to the point where his parents, incredibly, in 1918, didn't even see a reason to baptize him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, Simon, if, if it helps you, mm. 
he added to this that the conservative believes in a transcendent order. Right. Cognizant right. that political problems are, when all is said and done, religious and moral problems. And I think the clue to understanding this kind of somewhat opaque, mysterious, spiritual dimension of society that he saw mm. was that he was concerned about what he called a narrow rationality. Because right. he thought a narrow rationality is incapable of satisfying all human needs. Now, yeah, so don't someone, you think so there's a lot of truth that to that yeah, yeah, absolutely. I was going to say, this is exactly the thing we face today, is that on both sides of politics, there's a rejection of the transcendent because politics is a natural, naturalist exercise. And so thinking about community and political life aside from the spiritual is a, is a no no go it's a no go zone right and I, and I, to some extent we can kind of agree with that like let's secular public square and so on there's like some of this makes some sense he strikes on the fact that actually human beings are spiritual and therefore their relationships with each other in family in community in political life are going to have a spiritual element to them he wasn't an establishmentarian by the way he wasn't pro national church or anything like that was he this is this is making a different entirely different point to linking the church and state he wasn't even a super religious kind of guy simon that's one of the things that um really mm. interestingly burza uncovers um in his biography of kirk i mean he, he was a serious christian and he he had a serious commitment mm. to catholicism but he wasn't Reading between the lines, he wasn't a regular churchgoer. He wasn't kind of obsessed with theology. But I, th- I think what he, what he really nailed here was the mm. idea that once rationalism becomes supreme and liberalism in both mm. the American but also the classical liberal sense of the term, they are really religions of reason, right? That is, it's yeah. all about applying our objective rationalism to political problems and coming yeah. up with the self-evident solution. He thought that once you stripped out the transcendent, the spiritual dimension of human beings, then not only did you lose something crucial and vital to human well-being and satisfaction of um, the human being, he thought that it opened the door to all kinds of evils. And mm. we, shouldn't, mm. we shouldn't forget, he his intellectual life really spanned all of the worst bits of the 20th century. He was born right at the end of World War One. He lived Yeah, and so he's, he's seen the rise of communism, fascism. Right. He was and in the Nazism. army, although he served on the home front during World War Two. Yeah, he's World War Two, and then the, the, the War, like expansion of the communist state in Soviet Union and Cold War, like you said. Yeah, that's right. The Vietnam War, so enormous conflict, genocide, and violence. By it must be said, in spite of um, certain activist atheists who want us to believe that all of the worst regimes in history that were avowedly secular and atheistic were somehow surreptitiously religious. But the (laughs) the bottom line is that I think Kirk really understood that let's take um, Stalin's regime of communism. Once you lost certain transcendent ideas, and I'm not even sure for Kirk if they had to be specifically Christian, but let's take, as he was a Christian, let's just take the Christian idea that all humans are made in the image of God. And therefore... Mm -hmm have both the capacity for great good, not just evil, uh, but have a certain inherent dignity 
because they bear the markings of this transcendent creator. Once you ditch an idea like that, then humans are just animals that need to be corralled and culled for the greater mm. good. Mm. And you can right. justify any manner of evil once you're just applying reason, particularly yep. the kind of utilitarian and egalitarian um, ethos that Kirk had in mind. So that that's how I understand yeah. what yeah. he's getting at there, although it is fair to say, I think, Simon, that he, he never really fleshed out this idea. It kind of trails off once he gets into the transcendent yeah. and perhaps by definition... <laughs> he had to trail off once he got to the actual transcendent. I think the key thing for him was to at least look at the transcendent and above the kind yeah. of um, materialistic, consumptive, utilitarian That's right. gaze that can't actually raise the, the eyes to the heavens. Jonathan, thanks for another stimulating conversation and thanks to our listeners for joining us for this episode. Follow us on Twitter at PolAnimalsPod. That's P-O-L-A-N-I-M-A-L-S-P-O-D. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Facebook. And if you like what you hear, give us five stars on iTunes. And if you don't, then don't give us a rating at all. But please rate us on iTunes. uh, And we hope that you'll join us again next time on The Political Animals for another discussion about politics, culture and ideas from a conservative perspective. 